Amen. How are we doing? Happy, uh, finally, autumn, fall weather. I am very excited. My name's Jesse. I'm one of the pastors here at Redeemer. And if it's your first time, we're really excited that you're here. Um, I know kind of this is starting the trend of some fall break weeks, so it's a little light, but we're really, really excited that you're here. Um, I, every fall, I, I get hit with this weird kind of tension with running. I, I know a year ago I talked about how I vowed running, and of course it got, I vowed it away, and it got nice again, and I was like, forget about it, I'm going to do it. And I always make this mistake where I enter into races without training for it, and I get pummeled every single time. And I've noticed this trend amongst humans and amongst myself firsthand that we tend to think that we are often much stronger than we really are. And I don't just mean stronger in the physical sense only. I mean stronger in the emotional sense, the mental, the spiritual sense. We like to clench our jaws, white knuckle it, bear down, and work through things. Even when deep down we know that we cannot accomplish this on our own. Whatever task it may be, it's ingrained in us. We believe all the work has to be done by me. If I have a struggle, I've got to fix it. If I have a problem, I've got to fix it. If I have a task to get done, it's on me to make sure that it happens. Now, it doesn't always have to be a negative thing. Sometimes there are things that we can accomplish on our own, but when it comes to the great issue of our souls and where they will find their rest, we all wrestle with the question of how do I get right with God? If you don't believe in God, then the question that you'll be wrestling with is how do I have a successful life here and now? And in our natural state, my argument would be that we always start and look inward. We look to ourselves to make sense of what it means to live a successful life. We look to ourselves to justify ourselves before God. And in the end, it is toilsome, toilsome, and unjoyful work because we know deep down how weak we really, really are. But in our culture and in our world, and like I mentioned, in our natural state, we are always told that it's on us and you can do it. You can make yourself right. You can work your way to achieve your salvation. We've been attempting this from the beginning of time. But the reality is, is we cannot do it on our own. This message has been pounded into the head of the Galatians. We've seen that throughout this whole time as we've worked through this letter. And we're going to see that Paul is going to continue this argument today. And he is going to remind us again of our stance before God and the great grace that he offers us. And he moves into this grand chunk about freedom, about what freedom in Christ really is. And if we would just accept what is offered in faith, we will begin to recognize the true freedom we can have in Christ and glorify our Lord as we were meant to. So with that, we're going to be in Galatians 4, 21 through 31. I'm not sure exactly. Page 974 on those Bibles in your rows. If you'll stand with me as we read from the Word of God. If you don't have a Bible today, there are some out there at the connection table. We'd love for you to take one on your way out. 
Galatians 4, 21 through 31 says this. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now you, brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. Not just as at that time he who was, but just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, so also it is now. But what does the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord God, we're thankful for this day. Uh, thankful for some cooler weather and a little rain, and that we get to come and gather together as your church. I pray that we would recognize just how great you are, how gracious you are, and how sinful we really are. And that we would rest in the grace that you offer us in Jesus Christ. And I pray today that we would be encouraged by your word. I ask that your Holy Spirit would be working in and through all of us, Father. And just pray that this would be a time of joy and of realizing what you've done for us in Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. You can have a seat. So... Right off the bat, uh, reading this chunk of scripture, it kind of can seem confusing. I think that um, out of the whole letter to the Galatians, it definitely took me off guard a little bit. But as I was digging into it, there was just some, some really, really awesome stuff that I found and that I believe God would have for us today. So you can see immediately who Paul is addressing. He is saying, those who desire to be under the law... If we follow along from last week, we know that Paul is frustrated, he's perplexed, and at the same time, he's hurting for the people that he is writing to. In verse 19 of chapter 4, it even describes him as, as being in anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in them. He so badly wants the people of Galatia the people that he's writing to. He wants them so badly to grow in this understanding of Christ that he's equating the pain he's feeling for them to giving birth. Personally, I have never felt that pain. However, from what I've gathered, it is intense. Paul is feeling these emotions and turns to the people to get serious with them. He says, you who want to be under the law, do you not listen to the law. If you remember, there are false teachers here in Galatia who are saying in order to be saved, you have to believe in Jesus Christ and follow the law. 
You must believe in Jesus and follow the rules. If you don't do that, then you will not be saved. These false teachers were Judaizers, and this was a message that they were spreading, and Paul is trying to combat that. And he's, they say, it's great that you believe in Christ, but to really be children of Abraham, this is the Judaizer speaking, children of the promise that God gave to Abraham, then you have to follow the law of Moses too. Paul wants to contradict this message right here, and he essentially says, you know what? No. Once you put your faith in Christ, you already are considered a child of Abraham, an heir of all of the promises of God. And the moment you believe that you have to obey the whole law to either get or to keep your salvation, you are not children of Abraham at all. He uses the very argument that the false teachers are using to prove that their own argument is wrong. That's why he asks, do you not listen to what the law actually says? The word law is often used in the, in the New Testament to refer to, well, it refers to the whole Old Testament in its entirety. It was a record of the will of God. So Paul goes to the story of Hagar and Sarah. It's possible that the false teachers were even using this exact story to prove their point, but Paul is going to use it and turn their argument on their head and say that you are missing it entirely. So it's important that we have a quick overview of what's actually happening here. So in Genesis 12, we read the beginning of this account mentioned. In Genesis 12, 1 through 4, the Lord God commands Abraham. His name was Abram at the time. He hadn't had his name changed yet. He commanded Abraham to go and leave the land of his kindred to where God was going to show him. He was promised that he would be made into this great nation, be blessed, and in him all of the families of the earth would be blessed. So Abraham sets out, as the Lord had told him, and he has promised that he would have an heir, an heir that was his own to inhabit this land and to carry on the line and inherit all the promises that God told him. So Abraham and Sarah at the time didn't have a son, and they were getting up there in years. And I mean like, not 40s and 50s, not that that's old. <laughs> Way older than that. 90s. So after 10 years of being in the land, they get to the land, they're there for 10 years, they're like, all right, what's going on here? Where's our son going to be? Sarah has this idea that Abraham should conceive with her maidservant Hagar. They hadn't had an heir. It had been 10 years, so it's time to take things into our own hands, they think. Abraham, it says in the text, doesn't say a word, he just agrees. He's like, all right. He listens to the voice of Sarah, and he goes with Hagar, and they have a son, and his name was Ishmael. Abraham knew that he would have a child who would be an heir, a child who God would use to bring salvation to the world. But for this to happen through his wife, it would require a completely supernatural and extraordinary act of God, and he didn't have the faith in that. So they, say, they see Hagar, and they say, this young fertile woman, be easy to make this happen. And at the time, it would have been perfectly legal to have a son through the maidservant and have him considered an heir. However, God 
did not and would not, does not condone that behavior. He used Ishmael for his glory, no doubt, but the point is that Abraham attempted to gain the promise of God by his own achievement. He acts in his own will. He attempted to do the work that only could be accomplished by God. So Abraham now has an heir to carry on in the land as God had promised. But God had other plans. He's like, not so fast. 14 years later, at this point, Abraham is 100 years old. In Genesis 21, 1 through 3, it says, The Lord visited Sarah as he had said. The Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore to him, Isaac. It's interesting how many times I found that Sarah was mentioned in these few verses. The author makes it clear that Sarah, the old woman who was not able to have a child, was the one who was going to give birth to Isaac. And he wants to make sure you see that. Paul in verse 23 of our passage today says, But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born according to the promise. And he says that we can interpret this account allegorically. I'm going to be honest with you, I had to look up the word allegorically. I was a little embarrassed, but I did. So it's a story kind of with a hidden meaning. So Paul is saying that the false teachers were telling Christians that in order to be saved, to inherit the promises of God, they essentially must become Jewish. The false teachers were saying, you have to also act like a Jew. You have to um, follow the law. But Paul says, following the law doesn't save you. It's not what you must do to be right with God anymore. He says, these women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. So what does this mean? What is the allegory? What's the message that we're supposed to get from this? Paul is stating that Hagar and Ishmael represent the law at Sinai in the present city of Jerusalem. Now, this, these are fighting words right here. These are like, to the folks spreading a false gospel, these are like, Yo mama jokes or something. I mean, they are just straight up. They, it's calling out the very things that they hold so dear and saying, you know what? That's slavery. That makes you a child who is enslaved. He says, you think you know what you're talking about, but the reality is when you believe that you must still be under the law, you are actually enslaved. And I'm going to let you know it by proving that you are viewing your so precious law in your central city of Jerusalem completely wrong. To believe that your justification comes from law keeping is putting people exactly in the opposite position of what they think that it's bringing them. And it's ironic. They are considered in slavery because they're still in bondage to keeping the rules in order to be right before God and they don't realize they can not do it. They have already failed, both in their practical actions 
and especially in their motives. He equates Hagar and Ishmael to Mount Sinai because like Ishmael, being born according to the flesh, meaning he came about by human means, the same thing is happening at the law giving at Mount Sinai. In Hebrews 4.2 it says, For good news came to us just as to them. But the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. So this portion in Hebrews is talking about the Israelites and their lack of faith. Their lack of faith that it was God who they needed to trust in and depend on. They get the law and they're like, cool, we'll do it. Because in Exodus 24.3 it says, Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. And the people answered with one voice and said, all the words that the Lord has spoken we will do. We know this is not the case. We know they failed. They had no freedom to follow the law from their heart. Simple rule keeping. They trusted in themselves. They depended on themselves and believed in themselves. To try to attain the promise through their own works is keeping them in bondage. But Sarah represents the new covenant that we have, the new covenant that we have in Jesus Christ, the one that states, because Jesus came and fulfilled the law perfectly, unlike anyone else up to that point or after it, we no longer have to strive to earn our salvation. All we must do, all we have to do is accept this free gift of grace that was completed by God from start to finish. God worked in and through Sarah despite all of her apparent weaknesses. She didn't bring anything to the table. Not a thing. God worked through her in his own power. She represents the Jerusalem above, we read in verse 26. This is referring to heaven. The new Jerusalem, the physical Jerusalem of the time was equated to Hagar because it was still in bondage. Most of the folks there were still trying to rely on their own human effort to be right with God. And using the city is a powerful, powerful metaphor because the city represents where someone is a citizen. It's the place where you feel home. Most of us here are citizens of Bloomington. We have a sense of belonging. We have rights if you're a citizen of the United States. The present Jerusalem is used in reference with Hagar and Ishmael because that is where they were citizens of, the earthly Jerusalem. But those who have put their faith in Christ are citizens of the new Jerusalem, the dwelling place of God. And the citizens of that city are free. I would venture to say we all desire to do what will bring us joy. All of us. We go after what we think will bring us joy. True freedom is having everything line up, everything line up so that we can do whatever it is that brings us ultimate and unending joy. That's a definition that I would have of true freedom. Having everything, all of our opportunities and our abilities line up so that we can do whatever it is that brings us ultimate and unending joy. And the claim that the scriptures make is that that ultimate joy is found in God alone. John 15, 9 through 11 says this, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. 
Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments and abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love, these things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your, your joy may be full. Christ is saying, if you abide in me, that's where you will find full joy. We were created, created to be fulfilled by God, to worship and glorify him. Those who are figuratively children of Hagar are not free to desire what will bring them unending joy. They look to this world for that. But it will never be found here. Freedom is something we like in our culture. Let's just be honest about that. We like to boast in our freedoms. And it is almost always equated with the freedom to have the opportunity, the ability to do whatever it is that makes us happy. But we fail to see oftentimes in our materialistic society that the thing that brings us unending joy is not of this world. We look to comfort, security. Some people simply equate freedom to just lack of responsibilities. I'm free. I can go travel wherever I want. Do whatever I want. No one has any authority over me. But freedom, true freedom, does not come from things of this world. Paul is saying that those who are in Christ are the ones who are really free. Free from the idol of self, the idol of materialism, the idol of safety and comfort, the idol of pleasure, all things, all things that are ultimately fleeting in this world. Jesus offers himself to us so that we may glorify God with our whole life and find our deepest joy and freedom in him. It's important to remember, again, that what Paul is doing here, this example of Hagar and Sarah, is allegory. In the account of Genesis, Hagar is really kind of an innocent victim, while Sarah is the one who came up with the plan in the first place to have Abraham and Hagar attempt to have a child. So we should read the account in Genesis as literal, it's a true story, and understand the theological and moral lessons that are in it right there. But Paul is not attempting to do that here. He's saying that this can be, this is an illustration that points forward to the truth that we have in Christ. So when we take it in this allegorical sense, Hagar and Sarah refer to salvation by works. Sarah and Isaac represent salvation by God's grace. It's a good analogy. It is the gospel. The good news that our salvation comes only from God. We in and of ourselves are completely unable to do anything to achieve it. We can't gain and grow in our righteousness apart from the work of God intervening in our lives. From the birth of Jesus to his perfect life, to his death on the cross and to his resurrection, all of it was a work of God. Start to finish. An heir being provided to Sarah. All a work of God. Completely impossible by human means. 
Paul is reminding the Galatians yet again, you cannot add to this good news. Stop trying to. The reality is that no one ever has or will be able to add to what God has done for them. It's been good news. The good news of God's grace has been from Genesis 1 all the way to the end of the Bible in Revelation. God is the one who is pursuing. God is the one who pursues us and makes things happen. Paul mentions that when you put your faith in Christ and trust that your salvation comes through faith alone in what Jesus has done alone, you are a part of the Jerusalem that is free, the Jerusalem above. He quotes Isaiah 54.1 here in verse 27. And if you're unfamiliar with Isaiah, he was one of the prophets from the Old Testament, and he lived during the time of the Jewish exile in Babylon. Israel had been taken from their home. They had believed that they would never be able to return to their land. No more national life. Their identity stripped from them. Their home gone. They were weak and seemed to have failed to maintain their identity as the people of God. Can you imagine what they would have felt? Taken, forced from their homes, exiled, it would have been extremely hard. I can't imagine. I can't imagine if that happened to us. It's, it's kind of a foreign concept to many of us, this idea of just being taken and misplaced, displaced, no home, no nation. How weak and useless they would have felt. No freedom at all. Isaiah in chapter 54, where this quote in Galatians is being drawn from, tells us that the people were to rejoice. He says, now that you know that you are nothing apart from God, you in and of yourself, Israel, you in and of yourself, Galatians, are nothing apart from God. Now that you see that, rejoice that he is gracious. Because in your weakness, you will see the power of God at work. The strong are too busy thinking that they can accomplish everything on their own. We see that here in Galatians. When you come to the end of yourself, like the Israelites would have had to during their exile, and recognize how spiritually and physically and everything else how bankrupt you are, God wants you to look at him and rejoice. Break forth and cry aloud, the text says. Break forth and cry aloud, even when you're in that state of weakness. God is holy. No sin exists in him, and it can't even be in the presence of God. He doesn't tolerate it. We can never stand before him as we are in our sin. No one in this room, none of us are perfect. No one ever besides Christ has been or will be. And this should cause us to treat God with the utmost reverence and awe. More than anything else in all of our life, to approach God in, an, in a flippant kind of way is very unwise. There are a lot of examples that I could bring up of what this would look like. Um, we don't have time to get into all of them, but uh, one I was thinking about often that I, that I do is I don't take seriously all the time when I approach the Lord's table. When I'm remembering what Christ has done for me, 
I just do it. I just go through the motions. But we have a holy God that we are called to be serving. And sometimes in that, it can kind of feel like, whoa, this isn't very fun. It's a little too serious. And the reality is, is it is serious. But God has offered us his grace and the covering of Jesus Christ and his righteousness. And this enables us to rejoice. We come with this reverence and awe, but we also come with the joy and the peace and the assurance that if we have put our faith in Christ, we can approach him. And we don't have to come all cleaned up to accept what Jesus offers. Paul, in verses 28 through 31, gets to that point. He says, Now you, brothers, like Isaac, are children of the promise. But just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. But what does the Scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. So there are a few practical things I want us to notice about what we read here. First, we are reminded again of who we are, children of the promise, children of the free woman, if you are in Christ. But also, it is important to remember that we are children of a barren woman, Sarah. Back in these times, there was a lot riding on having an heir. If you didn't have an heir, your family line was done. You would possess no one to give your wealth to, which was your land and your livestock. For a woman to be unable to have a child at that time was very much looked down upon. And I do not want to make light of this issue for us very practically today because I know it's something that affects many people. Actual physical inability to have a child. But I want to see in this, I want us to see the way that God works in someone who at face value looks like they bring nothing to the table. The Galatians had been told by the false teachers that essentially you're not good enough. You're not good enough. You're too flawed. You're too dirty. You're not of the right social standing to be considered children of God. You can't just believe and become miraculously a child of God. You have to believe and then follow all of the rules. But that is false teaching, Paul says. The gospel is good news to all, no matter where you are at. And when you fail, even after putting your faith in Christ, it still is good news. It's great news for those of us who recognize we are weak and unworthy of the grace God offers. There are many false thoughts that we are fed in our culture that this text right here just debunks. One is that the gospel is for only those who are cleaned up. Those who are able. Those who are, to keep with the analogy, young and fertile. We put a heavy, heavy weight on ourselves and on others when we think that you have to come in a right way to be before God. 
The gospel is not only for those who the world sees as able. Not just for those who come from the right family or who fit the cultural idea of success or who have not made big mistakes in their life or for those who still struggle with some sort of life-dominating sin. The gospel is absolutely for those folks. We see God use people in their weakness like Sarah and her inability to naturally have a child throughout the scriptures all the time. And I was thinking about this. I was like, well, why does God do this? And I'm sure there are many, many reasons. But I think the biggest one is so ultimately we focus again on him and not us. Because if God worked through the strong all the time, we in our sin would be so tempted to focus on, okay, well, here's how we do this in our human effort. I believe God has made the point to use weak people, say weak, there's many definitions of what that could be, so it's clear that God's grace alone is what we need. We are talking about the lineage of our Savior here. The culture, both then and now, might have assumed that God would choose a younger, more able, or obvious pair to bring about the lineage of Christ. But he didn't. 1 Corinthians 1, 27 through 31. Great passage says, But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to, to nothing things that are so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. That's awesome and wonderful news for us. Even if you have come from a good family, had an education, been given many things, the gospel is still gorgeous news for you because ultimately we are all on a level playing field before our Lord. And you still have to recognize that you are spiritually barren apart from the grace of God. So where today do you feel like you don't measure up? Have you done bad things in this room? Have you done bad things that you feel like you have failed? Do you feel like, well, I'm just a failure? Are you in a place of struggle and weakness just trying to push through, saying, I'm just going to do this on my own? Jesus offers you joy and freedom and life. How do we... How do we encourage one another in our relationships to rest in this grace? I think first we should recognize where we create these standards. We should probably have a look. We should constantly be assessing in Redeemer Community Church, well, where do we put standards up that people have to, to measure up to? And we should also just be honest where we're struggling. Just be honest about it. The recognition of our weakness is huge. In that, we are reminded that we must rely and depend on God for our salvation. And we're saved into a family, which is also good news. That's why Paul is always addressing people in the plural. It's important because another lie of our culture that, that we hear a lot is that freedom and independence are 
synonymous. We're free in Christ, free in a family to love and care for one another. And there's one final warning that we see to those who accept this free gift of grace in Christ that we read here. It says, but just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, so also it is now. Persecution that comes to true believers in Christ does not always come from the world. In fact, many times it comes from those who are from a proximity standpoint very close to us. The religious, the nominal church. This has always been the case. Jesus was persecuted by his own people. Paul was persecuted by the Jews of his time. And why is this? Because the gospel is threatening to us if we think in just pure religious terms, meaning if you do the right things, you'll be right with God. It's threatening because deep down, relying on religion to save you leaves you in this place of anxiety and nervousness. And when someone comes to you and says, you know what, all those good things you've done are useless. That would upset us. But Paul wants them to recognize that this will come. But in that, we don't respond. We don't reply with sinning. We don't repay evil for evil. When we are identified with Jesus, there is nothing that can take that away from us. We're children of the free woman. You no longer have to be strong. You no longer have to seem like you have it all together. Let your guard down. Because the reality is, none of us do. Romans 5, 6 says, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. And a few verses ahead in verse 8, it says, But God shows his love for us, that in while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's good news, amen? Come weak. Come humble. Unworthy. Come knowing that God has done everything for you from start to finish if you believe in Jesus Christ, that he lived and fulfilled the law perfectly, died on the cross for your sins, and rose again. If you've put your faith in him, but still find your time in this struggle, in a time of weakness, the gospel still applies to you. I'm going to finish with words from Jesus in Matthew 11:28 that I think are important to remember about where we are at in our stance with Christ. He says, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. It sounds kind of nice, kind of too good to be true. But I want to encourage you that it is too good to be true. That's what Jesus offers you. Rest and freedom in him. We're going to take some time now to remember, to remember what Christ has done for us in his death and resurrection. We're going to partake of the Lord's Supper, and we do that at Redeemer here by coming down, uh, coming down the middle. There's, we tear off a piece of bread and dip it in the glass. There's juice and wine to take as your conscience leads you. Uh, the wine is in the glass marked with twine. 
There's a gluten-free station down here and a station up in the balcony as well, I think. Um, but this is just a time to remember what Christ has done for you. If you have accepted this free gift of grace that he offers you, and if you have not done that yet, there will be pastors in the back who would love to talk and pray with you. Um, so I pray that if you don't know Jesus today, you would take the time to respond to the grace that he offers. Let's pray. Lord God, I thank you for this day. I thank you again just that we can come and gather, that we can come and gather as your people, and that we can come and gather as weak people, that we can rest in what Christ has done for us. And I pray that we would see that we so often want to give into this idea that our salvation comes by our works, by the things we do. But we know that Jesus came so that we do not have to work our way back to you. That's how you have been working from the beginning of time, and we're thankful for that. I pray today that we would be encouraged, rest in your grace, and that we would worship both reverently and joyfully and just know that your promises are true and that we can rest in them. And it's in Christ's name I pray, amen.